0: biology takes time and, and biology doesn't exactly lie and as a result you're gonna have good days and bad days and, and you have to if you're gonna lead a company like this you have to have fun with it uh, otherwise uh, you won't be able to, to continue to focus and, and go forward. Welcome to Medsider Radio where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now here's your host Scott Nelson.
1: Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Joe Landolina, CEO of Creselon. Joe was introduced to chemical lab research at a young age, which kindled a lifelong interest in discovering responsive, nature-derived materials. Embarking on his journey as an entrepreneur and innovator, at the young age of 17, Joe invented the technology behind Vetagel, a major breakthrough in the field of trauma care. As the co-founder and CEO of the company, Joe continues to push MedTech frontiers with his unwavering commitment to innovation. Here are three of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, having a solid strategy is key when exploring unorthodox approaches in the MedTech space. You need to reassess the market needs and your next steps continuously, stay vigilant to seize opportunities, and be flexible to pivot when necessary. Second, the FDA regulatory process isn't always straightforward and can sometimes seem like a black box. For that reason, make sure you nail the fundamentals before getting too creative and surround yourself with an experienced regulatory team to de-risk every step along your journey. Third, be cognizant of communicating your company's narrative in a clear, succinct fashion do that, decide what your ultimate mission will be and simplify the complex jargon to help your audience understand your product and the value it brings. This approach attracts not only customers, but also potential investors and partners. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we recently released the second volume of Medsider Mentors, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular Medsider interviews over the last six months or so. Look, it's tough to listen or read every single Medsider interview that comes out, even the best ones, but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create Medsider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of AliveCore, and so many others. In addition, as a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible med tech and health tech entrepreneurs. Learn more by visiting MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. Joe, welcome to the program. Appreciate you coming on.
0: Of course, Scott. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, looking forward to the, the the conversation without without a doubt. So I gave the listeners a high-level overview of your bio at the outset of this episode, uh, but let's hear it from you. If you can give us kind of an elevator pitch or maybe an elevator summary is the better description for, for your professional background leading up to uh, uh, co-founding Kreslon. Uh,
0: of course. So I'm um... My name is Julian Delina. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Cressalon. And I I was really lucky to have gotten a a pretty early start into everything. So I I invented the technology behind BetterGel that we'll be talking about at the age of 17 and started the company later on that year uh, and was lucky that my grandfather was a former executive of Hoffman La Roche, who in retirement started a vineyard. And so I was lucky enough to have had a chemistry lab across the street from my house led by a grandfather who had learned lab safety in the 60s. Uh, and, and that meant that from the time that I learned how to walk, I also learned how to go into a lab. So I had a really early exposure to chemical lab research. Uh, my parents were not so thrilled with my grandfather's approach into uh, into chemical edu- education. And as a result, they made a deal with me, which was to go out and learn how to do research, quote the right way. and And so as a high school student, I had the opportunity to do a summer of research in tissue engineering at Columbia University uh, that was focused mainly on using plant-based scaffolds to differentiate stem cells into a target tissue. And and that really sparked a lifelong journey of trying to find responsive materials that come from nature to do something. And at the age of 17, I I was then, at that time, an incoming freshman in chemical engineering at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. And I, I discovered this material that was a blend of two polymers that come out of algae that would, uh, if nothing else, instantly is reassemble and it would stick to skin and it wouldn't let go until you wanted it to. And I, I had this idea, which was, what if you could inject that into an actively bleeding bullet wound, uh, at least long enough for it to hold itself in place, stop the patient from bleeding so you can get that patient to the next level of care. And uh, while that's not exactly what we do today, that was the, the initial concept for for Vetagel, and, and we, we founded Cresslon around that. Okay. That's
1: awesome. Uh, it's, just, it's just a good a classic entrepreneurial story. And I love the fact that you've got like a, you see a great grandfather or was it your, your... Uh, my, my mother's father. My okay. Okay. Father. Your, your, your grandfather who's sounded fairly entrepreneurial is like, Hey, you just got to like build things in this lab. And your, your, your parents are like, Whoa, wait a second. You know, you need to uh, slow down. Let's do this. Let's do this the, the, the right way. That's uh that's, that's great. That's a great kickoff. So there's a ton of interesting things happening with, you mentioned, uh, you know, scaffolding and, and stem cells. Ton of interesting things happening in that space. So, can you give us a little bit of, uh, of an idea of like what, what's the differentiator here with 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 Gel? With
0: sure. I think the key word here is brute force with Vetti Gel. And so, uh, what we do is we, at the simplest level, make a really good mechanical barrier. And what that translates to is that Vetti Gel allows you to stop the most traumatic bleeding you can imagine. Uh, so, so think massive pulsatile arterial bleeding uh, that would be lethal otherwise. You can put this product on and in under three seconds, it instantly creates a mechanical barrier. It does not get washed away by the flow of bleeding and it stops that flow of bleeding nearly instantly. But then most importantly, it allows the patient to create their own fibrin patch underneath. So if the gel gets removed, you actually look or see what underneath what would be similar to a healed injury. Uh, so if you have vasculature, that vasculature has been partially rebuilt underneath. Uh, so it's a, a really fascinating concept. We're, we're not getting into things like tissue factors or, or, or other. Uh, we're not going deep into the chemistry. We're effectively making just a really good mechanical sealant uh, that allows us to be applied to a wide variety of hemostasis uh, or hemostatic environments.
1: Got it. Got it. And, and, um, I guess without going too far into the weeds, cause I don't want to get too, too technical and this is not certainly not my domain expertise um, at all, but this, the mechanical kind of sealant as, as you described it, is it just the sheer fact that you're stopping, you're stopping sort of, uh, the, the blood flow so, so acutely that allows sort of the natural healing process to take place? Or is there something about your sealant that further accelerates that national, that natural
0: uh, healing process? Sure. So, so there, there are a number of things. So, so the first of which is that you can have the best clotting agent in the world, uh, but if it's being washed off of the wound, the clot gets washed off with it. And that's the challenge that the, the majority of technologies today have, where even if you take thrombin and you put it directly onto a source of injury, you're going to get a lot of fiber that's produced locally, but that'll all be washed away if you don't have something to hold it in place properly. Uh, and, and so with the material that we have, They're both natural polymers. Uh, They've both been used across the medical device industry. Uh, And what we're doing is we're putting them together in a form uh, that not only allows them to work as a mechanical barrier, but it also allows them to support that formation of the clot. And it gives, to get back to the term scaffolding, it provides a scaffolding so that when the patient produces fibrin, that fibrin can be produced onto something uh, that is uh, not only a structure that helps it build up, uh, but it's non-porous. So if the gel gets pulled away, and I mean we all say this when we cut ourselves shaving, uh, you put toilet paper on it, it stops bleeding. You pull the toilet paper off, and now there's a clot on the toilet paper, and you're bleeding again yeah. uh, because the clot ends up forming inside of the pores of the toilet paper uh, with something like VetiGel, uh, you don't have any porosity. And so when that clot forms, if the gel falls off or if you pull the gel off, you end up leaving that clot behind. And as the patient breathes and moves, uh, either just from respiration or from actually moving and running around, it's less likely for that clot to get disturbed underneath. Uh, so it, it, it's acting from, from both angles, but primarily as a mechanical barrier. Got it. Okay.
1: Super helpful. So give us before we kind of uh, sort of step inside uh what I like to refer as the the, the medsider time machine and, and and go back and learn a little bit more about the journey with Creslon with and what you've learned along the way, give us a sense kind of for where you're at in terms of you know development, regulatory and 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 commercialization.
0: Of course. So Creslon is a little bit unorthodox in the way that we've uh in the way that we've grown up, in that Uh, Our material is novel enough that we were unable to find a suitable contract manufacturer to do it. And so uh, for the last uh, nearly decade, our journey was building our own manufacturing. And so Cresselon's journey began uh, as becoming what is today the only aseptic fill and finish operator in the five boroughs of New York City. And so uh, we today operate at 25,000 square feet of sterile vaccine-grade clean rooms uh, where we produce all of our products. Uh, we went commercial with our very first product, which is BetterGel. It's an animal health surgical hemostatic device. And uh, that's now commercial not only in the United States, uh, but in about 20 countries around the globe, but primarily between North America and, and Europe. Uh, we, we've deployed about 30,000 uh, or we've had about 30,000 patients uh, that have been impacted by Vetagel, So that's something that that we're uh, incredibly proud of. And and we just made a major investment in the production capacity of our site. Uh, So we've increased the production capacity by about 50 times uh, from what it was last year uh, in order to continue that global launch. Uh, So Vetagel has been uh, an extreme commercial success, something that we're incredibly proud of. And one of the great things about animal health is that uh, we get to see all indications under this one product. Uh, so we're doing everything from neuro and spine surgery to massive trauma to small nicks and scrapes and treating dogs that may, may have a cut on their ear or on their tails.
1: Got it, got it. And so and, and just to set the stage, if for those listening that are like, wait a second, this is for for veterinary use? Like Scott, you don't interview people that are that are doing stuff in the veterinary world. You did just recently submit your 510K, and we'll get into this in more detail, but you did just recently submit your 510K for, for uh, uh, human use, correct? Exactly. So
0: yeah. we, we took effectively the a very similar device to BetterGel, it's the exact same underlying technology, and we submitted that under the brand name CHG, uh, which is uh, indicated for minor bleeding externally. Um, okay. And we're, we're anticipating clearance shortly. Uh, and we're also prepping to file a, a product under the brand name TraumaGel, uh, which will be for moderate to severe Emergency use, uh, so okay. think military use as well as EMS for for big bleeds, gunshot wounds, stabbings, uh, and uh, and anything else that falls into that category. Uh, we have uh, we're just now in the final stages of prepping that submission for the agency, uh, and so uh, this should be a very big year uh, from not only from the veterinary perspective, but being able to expand our mission to saving human lives.
1: Yeah, yeah, and one of the one of the reasons I, I was looking forward to this interview is is because of that kind of that. A bit unique of a model, right? Where, and I'm I'm sure there's probably some strategy behind it, right? Of like you know going first into into uh, you know for, for commercializing first for veterinary applications, probably tons of learnings, right? Not only just in in your commercial approach, but also just how does this work, right? Like what what's the feedback from you know from uh, veterinary clinicians, and obviously you can use that to impact your your uh, your human. Kind of launch and and, and roll out. but um, this will be fun. This, I'm looking forward to the rest of this conversation to learn a little bit more about that approach. So super helpful. And I mean, before we go any further, um, if you're listening to this interview and you're like, this sounds kind of cool, actually, the website's cresslon so C R E S I L O N, C R E S I L L O N, cresslon.com C-R-E-S-I-L-O-N, We'll certainly link to it um, as well as Joe's LinkedIn profile in the uh, the full MedSider summary article uh, for this interview. Uh, but if you're if you're curious now, just go to cresslon.com and, and, and check it out. It's a cool cool website. Um, for sure, uh, with some great, great videos. Well, well done. So let's step in the, let's transition. Um, maybe chat twenty or thirty minutes or so about kind of the, the journey that, that you've been on and kind of key key lessons learned along the way. So thinking back, right? I mean, this has been, like you said, there's been you know, it's been a ten plus year journey now almost. Um, but then thinking back to like those very first versions of of, of Vetigel, like. Now and you know think, thinking back, is there something that you would have done you know differently, or what would you have told yourself you know no back then based on your learnings? Kind of uh, working on those first alpha and beta beta prototypes.
0: Sure, I mean I, I think patience is key first and foremost. Uh, but secondly, uh, one of the biggest challenges that Creslon has faced is actually that our solution to most of our problems has been verticalization, uh, which is very unorthodox in life sciences. Uh, mm-hmm. We're typically. Young founders are told, uh, try to make everything as virtual as possible. Keep your teams as lean as possible. Try to be as capital efficient as possible. Find partners uh, for doing testing. Find partners to develop the regulatory strategy. Find partners to eventually manufacture and, and, and commercialize the technology. And it turned out for us uh, that we couldn't do most of those things outsourced uh, for, for one reason or another. And a lot of it came down to just the novelty and the difficulty of handling uh, the materials uh, that, that we have. And, and so when we frame this as what advice I, I would give to entrepreneurs that are in this situation, it's it actually funnily enough is don't necessarily follow the path that, that we follow unless there's an absolute necessity. I, I, I have a lot of entrepreneurs that come to me and, and say, I have this great idea. I want to start a pharma manufacturing plant. And uh, my advice is unless there's a gun to your head, do not. Uh, it, it, there there are far better uses of capital. We ended up having to do that out of necessity, but it caused significant delays. And In fact, you know, we had an MVP that likely could have been launched through uh, a CMO if one could have done this in 2015. And so it delayed us to market by, by five years and, and had to raise a significant quantum of capital beyond what we would have needed to uh, in the beginning. And now from where we sit, it's a great benefit that we now own our own manufacturing site and we have control of our destiny, uh, but it, it was definitely harrowing through those first several mm-hmm. years. Uh, because there's a lot of risk inherent when you're building a factory before you even know if the product would be commercially viable and before you even know if you can make the technology at scale into the level of quality and efficacy required by the market. Uh, and so uh, we we got it done and we got it done by bringing in a great group of people that have done this before and have as much experience as you can uh, in, mm-hmm. in flying blind in these situations. Uh, and I'm a strong believer that Cresson is better off for it. Uh, but it, it definitely was a challenging path to get to where we are today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's so interesting. It reminds me of, um, I was listening recently, I, I just actually just this morning to a, to a, to a podcast. Um, it's one of my favorites and he was, uh, the The host was explaining the scenario where when he when he was younger he was invited to this Alibaba event and um, it was supposed to be hosted by by Jack Ma but it was like his right hand man that that eventually hosted it. It was walking through these kind of like three key areas that most entrepreneurs kind of think they need to, to to align around in terms of best practices. And he and, and he you know he asked the question. He was like, "Planning. Let's talk about planning. You know, who here is actually uh, doing the thing that they originally planned out to do? No one raised their hand, right? And the, the whole the 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 theme was like." Look, I mean, yes, you of course need to be, you know, attempting to put together some, you know, some, some planning and have, have a sort of a, a mission and where in, you know, general direction of where you want to go. But the reality is like, you got to be flexible and pivot, right? I mean, you're like, <laughs> the, the plan is never going to go as exactly as you maybe thought expected to, to expect it. It sounds like that was probably the case for Creslon. You're like, let's get a, a contract, contract manufacturer up and running, keep this lean internal team.
0: And you're like, you, you struck out and had a, had a pivot. Exactly. And in fact, animal health was even a pivot. I mean, this mm-hmm. was as early as 2012. And and Hurricane Sandy, funnily enough, it was that pivot point for us. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I, I had a friend who was working at the time for the Wildlife Conservation Society, and they were having challenges where injured animals could not be treated efficiently because of the, the hurricane here in the Northeast. And he raised it to me that they, they had very little access to hemostatics, and the hemostatics they did have were not as advanced as the technologies on the human side. And, and we we grabbed that opportunity and ran with it, and, and that became our animal health first strategy that um, has has helped us generate revenue far before uh, our human approvals come through. Yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, that's uh, let's use that actually as a as a segue. But before before we do that, um, wanted to get your take uh, real quickly. I find it really interesting that you, you this vertical verticalization that you mentioned. Cause it seems like in this world of like, you know, scaffolding and stem cells and t- like tissue based engineering, there isn't, if any, like contract manufacturers that allow you to kind of like scale up. Unlike, you know, most kind of med tech and, 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 biotech, typically there is like some sort of con, you know, some sort of contract house that you can kind of give you over your design and, and they can kind of run with it in the, in the, in the early stages, but are you still seeing that same, same thing, right? There's just not, not players that will allow you to kind of really, you know, uh, you know
0: m- move forward in that kind of traditional model. So, so it's difficult because it's frankly, it's not terribly lucrative from the, from the CMO, CDMO side uh, in order to do this, because the, the vast majority, in my opinion, of stem cell tissue engineering, uh, scaffolding type companies uh, are highly specialized solutions and highly specialized solutions require highly specialized manufacturing and so if you go to a big CDMO and you ask them hey I'd like to make a scaffold that does X Y and Z they'll tell a they'll tell you okay that's great but you know give me X amount of money and, and we'll figure it out for you but you're, you're effectively paying them to do the development work uh, mm. on, on the front end and and they have to learn and there, there's no there's no guarantee that at the end of the day you're going to get to something that's manufacturable And yeah. uh, so from where we had to begin it was uh, it was far easier for us to, as we're learning through it, because at the end of the day, the technology that we are selling today is not exactly what we started the process with. And if we had given the formulation of 2013 or 2014 to a CDMO and they'd spent even the same time that we had, uh, the technology would have caught up and and the manufacturing process would have needed to have been different. And and I I think the engineer in me enjoys having control over not only the R and D and the manufacturing, but also the, the clinical outreach, because as you get clinical feedback, you can use that to modify all of the pieces of the business. And yeah. uh, again, it's not for everyone. You can only do it once you've invested it. And, and especially as we're looking at, at this funding economy uh, that, that we're likely headed into, it's going to be harder and harder to get investors to part with dollars for building brick and mortar before there's a proof commercial concept. All uh, right. But uh, we, I, or at the very least i consider myself lucky to be able to have had great investors that that understood or at least were patient with us as, as we hit the roadblocks that we did and it it now allows us to get out of that challenge because it's it's really easy to find a cdmo for simple um production processes or, or for things that are very common if you have something that's unique you're going to have a hard time
1: yeah totally agree uh it's it's, it's definitely definitely different and um um, with that, with that said, let's talk a little bit about that that pivot, right? You mentioned, um, you know, it sounds like back in you know 2015, Hurricane Sandy comes to comes to visits New York and says hi, and and you know um, uh, around that time you, you pivoted into this this veterinary pr- approach. Now you're commercializing, right, uh, globally uh, for that application. It's really unique and I, and I like it um tell us a little bit more about like the pros of this approach versus you know the the, the cons uh of uh, you know uh, and and maybe frame it up around you know just going straight to to human um for example
0: yeah of course I, I mean so in in 2012 when when sandy hit uh, was 2012
1: I, got it yes. okay got it yeah
0: uh, i I was 19 years old and the challenge that we were facing primarily there was just if we were going to dive into at the time what our first indication was was trauma it was uh, we wanted to Develop a product that can be used by the military for the largest bleeds that there are, and that's that's a lot to bite off, uh, especially as at the time a group of college students. Uh, and so, uh, what we were trying to do was find an indication uh, that had perhaps a lower barrier to entry. And when Animal Health presented itself, I remember at the end of 2012 uh, we. Uh, my team and I went to the AVMA, which is the American Veterinary Medical Association Conference. It was in San Diego. And uh, uh, it was we spent a significant amount of money that we had on hand. Too. We hadn't yet raised investment, but we started talking and canvassing customers. And every single vet that we spoke to said that it was a massive need and they effectively didn't have much that that could do. Hemostasis and especially on the larger end of massive trauma, that there was effectively nothing that was serving that market. And, and uh, every single one of them, most importantly, said that if we brought this to market, they would buy it. And uh, we we tabulated that information. I think we had something like 350 customers uh, or potential customers that said that they, they would purchase from that. And, and we used that not only to raise the first amount of capital that we raised for our business, but we realized really quickly on uh, that. Animal health was unique for a handful of reasons. It was unique because the regulatory barrier to entry is lower. Uh, not that, and just as an aside there, our strategy has always been that because there are no specific veterinary device regulations in animal health, we take the human device equivalent. Uh, and so I, I always tell my team, I like to sleep at night. <laughs> and, uh, and because of that, we, uh, we run the same process. We run the same design control process. We, we put it through GMP manufacturing. And that's one of the reasons why it's taken us as long as it has to get to market, uh, because we, we follow all of the procedures as if we were making a human medical device. Uh, but at the end of the day, we realized that this was a market where we could have severe differentiation and something like three seconds compared to 10 minutes uh, in, in, order to, uh, in order to stop bleeding in a market where there are over 3 million surgical procedures every single year and no biosurgery vertical today. and Or at least and even back in 20, uh, 2012, 2013, there was even less. And that means that you know, these are primarily generic products uh, that are not or that don't involve the innovation that we've seen in biosurgery in the human space. And so it's an opportunity for us as a startup to be able to enter the market far sooner to be able to come in as a market leader uh, with a limited space of competition where there's severe differentiation and no one who's going to get their feathers rustled by us coming in. So we're not going to be fighting big blue chip fortune 50 companies uh, for for market share. Uh, And we can make a real difference and Mm -hmm. and help real patients right out of the gate and truly change something in a market that is nothing to laugh at. And and as we've proven with Vetagel, and Cresselon this year will likely uh, be profitable alone, just on our veterinary revenues, and this is before mm-hmm. we factor in uh, anything on the human side. Uh, but including the spend that we expend in human R and D, uh, that'll all be balanced out by uh, by our veterinary revenues, and, and that's a really powerful thing to realize, which is that you know this market, which is tends to be an afterthought for for a number of companies, and and I mean we had investors over the years that that pointed us and say, well, listen, jettison animal health. It, it doesn't matter. It, it's not as, it, the TAM isn't as big as, as what you'll find in the, in the human surgical space. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have an 85% conversion rate uh, for customers that haven't heard about us into uh, into opening accounts and converting over to Vetagel. And the primary competitor that they're converting from is not a product. It's what we call pressure and a prayer. It's paying mm-hmm. someone to hold their finger on a bleed until it stops. Uh, and it means that we've been able to really quickly get clinical feedback and real clinical feedback at that across just about any indication that you can imagine. We're doing orthopedic procedures, we're doing spine procedures, we're doing massive trauma. We just We had a, a gunshot wound in Brooklyn that, that we heard about where we saved the patient's life uh, just last week. Uh, and it really runs the gamut of anything that you can think of, but that as engineers, it allows us to make better products for the human space as we start to pivot into those markets in a very lucrative way right right uh, I'm sitting here not nodding my head kind of lean, leaning in because it's
1: like I, I, I kind of want to invest in uh, in, <laughs> in uh, but, but joking aside though I, th- that couldn't have been easy right I mean you're having these conversations early on you need to raise capital you're saying hey look this is we, we actually believe this is the strategy and you've got you know probably pretty experienced investors saying no I, I don't I think that's a waste of time the market's not that big you guys need to focus but you decided to kind of stick to your guns um, and it's played out that well. And I just, I don't know, I, I'm kind of riffing a little bit here, but it just, it, it reminds me of like, if you're, you clearly have a ton of domain expertise, you've gone deep in this market and you you just, you trusted your instinct. And I don't, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, to that point, but I just think that's really, really powerful. And we always talk like in the, in the world of like, you know um you know, startups and, and, in in the entrepreneurial circles that you got to be willing to flex and pivot but in some instances you got to stick to your guns and say no no I, like i actually know a lot about what i'm doing here this is the this is the way right as mandalorian would say right this is the this is the path forward so yeah so i don't, I don't know if you have any 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 other thoughts there
0: yeah exa- exactly i mean again one thing that I, I always tell my team is that i like i personally get itchy if i don't if i go a week without spending time in an or with a customer and i think the thing that we did really well from the very beginning is as much time as we could, as much, whether it's time or money that we could expend, we spent time in ORs with our customers, seeing what they saw uh, and working with them to get iterative feedback. And, and I think sometimes that, uh, especially since so much of life sciences uh, starts in academia, uh, there, there's this divide between what happens in an academic lab and uh, what your customer actually wants, what the clinician actually wants, what the patient it, it wants to see as an outcome. And uh, we were lucky enough to have broken that early on. And I, I'm, I am not an academic by, by any means. I, I, I even consider myself a recovering engineer. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't spend much time, if at all, in a lab coat unless I'm giving a tour. Uh, and, uh, I, but beyond that, I mean, we've spent so much of the time of the early stage of the business and that continued spending time with our customers that it's, it makes it really easy to ensure that what we're making is solving a problem. And when you see that problem firsthand, you understand the magnitude of the opportunity. And, and if you layer that with maybe a little bit of founder delusion and <laughs> naivete, you end up with enough persistence to to get it done, despite maybe the bulk of people telling us that it, that it wasn't the right way to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of something uh, Ohad um, Arazi said recently. He's the he's the CEO of Clarius. And he, he, I think his, his comment was like, you got to be blind, deaf, and dumb, you know, to, uh, to to push forward on your startup. And that's not... He didn't mean it in, in the sense that you you just you don't take any feedback, but it's like, you know, you know, if you if you listen to everyone's responses, you you just won't do anything. Right. I mean, it just not, your, your startup, your boulder that you're pushing uphill will not be will not go very far. Uh, you know, so there, there's got to be a sort of a, an internal sort of. um is per- perseverance right and uh um e- even if that means you know pivoting and, and, and flexing which is certainly part you know par for the course um there's there's a there's always like a certain amount of resolve that you just you know this is you know this is this is this is the way to go um so with, with that said um Joe let's talk a little bit more about that that 52k submission I think you you submitted to Fda for human use about a year ago is that is this like this is a fi- even though this is like a, a sort of a a a, bi- a, bi- a biotech sort of product right you submitted it, it, it is a 510k
0: pathway then Exactly. I mean, what I like to say is that we have medical device regulation with biotech returns. Okay. And and uh, and perhaps that's a little bit too mumbo jumbo, right? But the (laughs) the idea is that uh, we're lucky that because these two polymers that make up thatter gel have been used extensively as medical devices, it's a mechanical barrier. It's regulated very strongly, like a medical device, and that allows us, uh, no matter the indication we're talking about, fairly rapid access or relatively rapid access to the to the market. Uh, but we're producing technology that's ubiquitous and, and that is a sector definer, a redefiner uh, that allows the surgeon to really change the way that they do surgery. And and so we we ended up with best of both worlds, where it's something that has very broad applicability but regulated like a device. Yeah, got it. And and so
1: when you, so you submit it, we're recording this in early Q2 of 23. You submitted about a year ago, and it sounds like you're you're pretty close. Like you've made a lot of progress with the, with FFA, FDA. I, I certainly don't expect you to, you know, disclose too many details around that. But I'm more interested in in just like that. Call it a year journey or so, right? Uh, with and, and it's much longer than that because there was certainly you know prepping for the the actual submission and 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 the efforts leading up to that. But you know, is there like one or two things that like, you know, when you think about you know when you think about that, that time frame, they're like, yeah, this, this is, this is the, this, these were our keys to success here. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash premium.